You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. So Christian theology, one of the unique parts about it, if you're looking at the history of religion, um, Christian theology is unique because Christian theology is deeply convinced that God insists on humanity's active agency and participation in God's reign of the world. This is, this is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. When God creates humanity in Genesis chapter 1, he creates humanity as co-regents, as co-rulers, as co-heirs of the creation he has just created. He takes humanity and he places them in a position um, over creation as creation's rulers. And as humanity fails to rightly represent God in the world, to reflect God, to bear God, God's image in the world to creation, um, God begins this redemptive project through this person named Abraham and through these people that God creates named Israel. And they are meant to represent God in the world, to bear God's image, to be co-regents with God. And as they fail... The Messiah and the King and the one human who is true and good and righteous comes, and Jesus does for humanity what humanity is not able to do for itself, and Jesus rightly bears the image of God, ruling as God. God honors this in his obedience unto death by resurrecting him and enthroning him in the heavenly places. This is the story of Ephesians, that we are gathering in as the people of Jesus under the reign of Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in this heavenly realm. And that as we live and operate in this uh, chaotic cosmos, this, this place where God's will still is not fully yet being done in the world, we are ruling um, as people who've been called to rule with Christ. This elevation of humanity to a godlike status is one that probably makes us uncomfortable if we're like good conservative evangelicals, right? If you grew up in like a Southern Baptist or a Bible church, you're like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Didn't Kanye say something like, I'm a God a while back, and we like were not happy about it? I want to make sure we're on the right page here. But if you go back to the early church, they, they fully understood that one of the things that God is up to among us is to restore the, our full humanity, and, and part of what it means for us to be full image bearers is that we would bear the fullness and likeness of God as God's image, like properly, accurately, faithfully. This is one of the reasons that God becomes human in the person of Jesus. One, to restore that for humanity, but also to show humanity what that even looks like. So if you want to know what does it mean for humanity to be like God, just look at 
Jesus. This elevation of humanity, this reality that we are in fact divine image bearers, all of us, the underlying belief that humans, every human, all humans, were intrinsically valuable and worthy of love, this is uniquely Christian. And it led to things like this. It was not evolutionary biology that led to women's suffrage. It was not evolutionary biology that led the civil rights movement. It was not evolutionary biology that ended apartheid. And while we recognize religion's role in feeding these oppressive empires and systems that held women down, um, vouched for slavery in antebellum United States, that um, voiced uh, the, the, all the reasons that we should be segregated. It was a foundational Christian belief and value that every human being, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their ability or disability, was valuable, was worth loving. All humans are worthy of love. This is the story of Ephesians. And I must confess to you that as a pastor, it's really, really easy for me to stand up here and tell you that God loves you. And I'm convinced that he does. It's really, really hard for me to hear it sometimes. And like actually really believe it and not let it go in one ear and out the other. And so my, my prayer this morning, we, we like actively prayed for y'all this morning, and one of the things that we prayed for y'all is that you would hear this morning, that you would somehow experientially taste the reality that God loves the world, but God loves you. God loves you as you are. Now that's the mind-blowing part. Like, well, clearly you don't know me. <laughs> clearly you don't know me. <laughs> God's work in the world is a work of grace. It is a work of giving the world a gift. It is a work of recreation. Uh, Ephesians tells us, for by grace you have been saved. At the center of what we believe that God is up to in the good news of Jesus is this reality that God has moved towards humanity in love in order to restore humanity, to bring humanity out of the clutches of death and to give humanity life. God's action through Jesus on our behalf for our rescue is God's grace, God's love enacted. If you've grown up in church, you've heard the word grace. Um, some churches are even called grace. I think uh, there's, I don't, there's a movie clip in my head floating around somewhere. Word has lost all meaning. I don't know what movie that's from. But I think we use the word grace so flippantly and so casually that the word has lost all meaning. Or we're like uh, Ricky Bobby. The word has taken on a meaning of its own. And I like to picture grace in a tuxedo t-shirt. And, uh, anyways. I think for a lot of us, when we hear grace, we hear God has excused my poor behavior. And I absolutely think that is, a, that is a part of grace. If we were to hold the diamond that is grace up, that would be one of the ways that the light 
reflects off of that diamond. But if we were to turn it, we would see a multitude of other ways that God is at work through grace in the world. One of my favorite anecdotes about this, I say it anytime, almost anytime I talk about grace, is the movie The Tree of Life that opens up with this beautiful depiction of what you're about to partake of in what I think is a fantastic movie, but if you watch it, you're going to be like, what the heck is this? This is so weird. It's very artsy, but strongly recommend it. With that caveat, um, don't send me an angry email. But it begins with the nuns taught us, like this, you've got this just random beautiful camera work going on and this overarching monologue. The nuns taught us there were two ways in life, the way of nature and the way of grace. The way of nature insists on itself, seeks vengeance, is malicious, tries to get ahead in the world, self-seeking. The way of grace is willing to be wronged, is gentle, quiet, peaceable. God's grace is God's movement towards us in love. God's grace is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, what we can't or won't do for one another. Yes, God's grace is God excusing our poor behavior, but it's so much more than that. It's God resurrecting us. It's God doing something that we couldn't even possibly begin to imagine. It's God breathing life into our dead souls. But then, not only that, taking us and elevating us and seating us with his son in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians. That we are raised with Christ and seated with him. The nature of our salvation is one of resurrection. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But now, you, my brothers, my sisters, have been made alive through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the great gift. You have been made alive. You have been rehumanized. You have been born into the full realization of what it was you were created to be. And all the ways that you fall short of that are not just excused, they're being remade, they're being made whole. I love the way that theologian Marcus Bart puts it in his commentary on Ephesians. Um, in talking about this passage, he says that God's gift is not an offer, but an act of creation. So I think for a lot of us, we have heard this good news pitched to us as, uh, at least I have, as like a sales pitch, right? Here's the offer on the table. God's got a gift for you. Sign on the dotted line and then God will give you the gift. It's almost like a, a, a what do you call it? Like you, you buy a car and you get like an incentive. Go and buy a car and you get a $100 gift card. It's not really a gift. <laughs> and, and somehow this is how we've been taught to think about the good news of Jesus. Jesus has done this great thing for you, and if you will just do this, then Jesus will actually deliver on what was promised. I wonder how many of us have come to see God's work in the world as an offer, something with strings attached. Maybe some of us have even heard or felt it as coercion. Believe this or else. Receive my gift or you're going to get it. No gift I've ever given anyone came with that sort of incentive. 
But Ephesians is emphatic here. Salvation is a miraculous act and a free gift dependent fully on God and God's love for those he's choosing to give the gift to as they are. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. You were sons of disobedience, but God. You were children of wrath. That is not God's wrath. That is wrathy children. You were the type of person who perpetuated wrath in the world, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for you, has made you alive in Jesus Christ our Lord. By grace, you've been rescued. By grace, you have been recreated. By grace, you have been resurrected. And so it should come as no surprise to us that this is, in fact, God's act of embrace. Too many of us have come to think of this good news as a legal transaction where we're signing on a dotted line so that our status can be shifted from from one move to another and almost like we are um, items to be bought and sold by God. And we've stripped God of God's essential nature, which is necessarily relational. We believe uniquely as Christians that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, one God who has eternally existed in three persons, one God in eternal relationship with God's self, wanting to share that with the rest of the cosmos. God creates humanity to share in God's love and also to share love with one another. In other words, at God's foundation, God is relational, not transactional. At the core of who God is and what God is up to in the world is relationship. God is not just trying to move you from one ledger to another ledger. God wants to embrace you as his son, as his daughter, as his child, his beloved. And so God moves towards you because God loves you. Yes, even you. Even me. Not because we stopped our sinning, even while we were sinners. Not because we had something to offer God, but because we didn't have anything to offer God. And God's move towards us is not a move of judgment or condemnation. God's move towards us is a move of embrace. Made evident in the person of Jesus. And this is the act of grace, God's embrace of us, all of us. (laughs) And so maybe there's some of us in here that are thinking, well, yeah, I mean, of course, God, God wants to give me a hug. I'm a huggable guy. But this guy over here, a little thorny, and yet part of what it is uh, that God reveals about himself through the person of Jesus is that God really loves the thorny ones. God really, really loves the outsiders, the poor, the marginalized, the ones that you dare God not to love. God's like, no, 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 I really love that one. And so this act of God is God's embrace of all of us. So each week, 
we come to the front and we partake of this thing that we call communion. Some churches call it the Eucharist. Some churches call it the table. Some call it the Lord's Supper. But in it, we are embodying this very idea. The table where God meets us week after week in our worship is a table where we proclaim it is God who saves us. It is God who moves towards us. It is God who embraces us as we are. It is by grace we are saved. Not our own efforts, not our holy rolling, not our abstinence from this or that or our good deeds we do on the weekends and our volunteerism. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're more spiritual. It's not because we have information that other people don't but God. Grace is the emphatic insistence that it is God who rescues you. As the fourth century church father Ambrose um, says about this reality, as we gather around Jesus' table, table and celebrate, we celebrate not in arrogance because of this. In faith we shout, I am accepted. I'm accepted at this table. You need to hear that God accepts you. There are some of you that are coming from some places right now, like, I don't know, that you, you feel like this table's not for you. You feel like God has distanced himself from you. You feel like God could never love someone like, like me or maybe doesn't love someone like me. And this is why week after week after week after week, it is imperative that we continue to embody this truth. God has stretched out his arms and embraced for you, even you, especially you. I'm accepted. Ambrose goes on to say that this is not arrogance. It's actually devotion. We cast ourselves upon this feast that God sets before us in giving us himself. Ephesians goes on, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And in case it's not clear, it says this is not of yourself. It's the gift of God. And that gift is not an offer, but an act of creation. And it's not a result of your works. so that no one may boast. So at our table, the way we do it here at Redemption, the only requirement is the trust, the hope, the belief that God has done this great thing for us in Christ. Even me. If you accept that reality, even with doubts, with lots of questions, with lots of imperfection, and even still with lots of sin, you walk into the realm of God's grace. And you join the rest of us who've come to see and believe that God is truly for us. God is truly for us. And therefore, we can truly be with God. 
There's no asterisks on that. There's no footnote, if you dot, dot, dot. Well, but have you done Lent right? Because if you have, then great. If not, and then God is going to distance himself from you. But have you lived all the ways you're supposed to live? Because if you haven't, then God is going to distance God's self from you. This meal is our confession, our embodiment, our insistence that God has promised us in the person of Jesus that God is with us, that God is for us, and that God is eternally reaching towards us in love to restore our souls and make us whole. And so Ephesians goes on, but before we point to that, I want to share a little bit about what we're doing here. So I have said this, I think, at the beginning of every sermon that we've done here in Ephesians, but Ephesians is a letter written to a group of people who Paul doesn't personally know. It's a, most likely a letter that was circulated among a series of churches in an area, so there's a little bit of like personal distance in some of the language. But part of what he's doing is he is, he is telling the Ephesians towards the end of his life and the beginning of their like new venture as communities of Jesus without this figurehead named Paul, who is their leader, he's telling them who they are. And because of who they are, he's telling them, this is your vocation. This is what God has made you to do. This is what God is doing among you and through you in the world. And so as we read it, my hope, my prayer for me, for you individually, but also for us collectively, is that we will begin to embody this vision of who we are. And Ephesians makes it clear over and over and over and over and over again, you are the beloved of God. And because of that, here's your vocation. Here's how I want you to move about the world when you leave this place. So if you've been waiting for like, yeah, but what's the application? Oh, don't worry. We got application coming in like chapters. So, okay, (laughs) buckle up. But we get a hint at it here. Um, In in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul uses this beautiful language, this creation language. We are his workmanship. We have been created. Don't underestimate that language. God is about the business of creating something in here among you and in your life. Something that is beyond your, like, manipulation, your control, your whatever. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we're following the the trajectory of this small little pericope here. From verse 1 to verse 10, we move from children of wrath, disobedient children, to redeemed by God, resurrected by God, recreated by God. And now on the other side of it, we have now gone from people who are spitting out wrath into the world to people who are putting out goodness into the world. We're image bearers. We're co-regents. We're co-creators. It is a restoral of our humanity. God is giving back to us what we've lost. From wrath to new creations. And our new humanity becomes a partner with God. I don't know why. (laughs) 
That's the way that God decided to do it. I'm going to make myself known through this people in the world, and that people has made a mess of it. Uh, talking about the church. Oh. <laughs> and yet, God insists, no, no, this is the way that I'm going to do it. Through you, Redemption Church. I'm going to make my love known. I'm going to make my embrace known through you. And so go and walk in the good works that I've prepared for you. We are now partners with God in the creative work of peace. Identified with the community of God. Because we are identified and seated with the Son of God. So no longer wrath, disobedience, decreation. Now we are full participants with God in God's recreative work. Our good works. The New Testament theologian N.T. Wright says it this way. The good works are the road which Christians must now travel in the right direction. After going down disastrously, disastrously the wrong direction. You were by nature children of wrath. You were going this way. You were living lives that were leading to death. God has resurrected you and brought you to life so that now you may lead lives that lead to life. But not just your life, but to the life of the world around you as well. So this makes us co-creators. Whereas before we've been implicated as wrathful destroyers of God's creation, now we are resurrected as co-creators in God's new creation. In Christ. This is the business of being the church. These good works are subversive acts of recreation. So this is not about like, don't listen to rap music, okay? That's not a good work. Apparently y'all aren't not a bunch of hip-hop fans in here. Okay, cool. Too Christian for that. Got it? All right. Um, But these subversive acts of recreation are like the subtle, hard, mundane, daily things that you don't really want to do. Like when your three-year-old is screaming at you and hitting you in the face to love them affectionately anyways. You all do that, okay? Don't worry about me. (laughs) And so the church, the gathering of God's people, stands at the center of God's redemption of the cosmos because we stand with Jesus, who is at the center and the head of the church, the community. And so even in our worship, as we enthrone Jesus week after week after week in our praying and confessing, we embody a subversive way of being in the world and we remind our souls, oh yeah, 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 this here, what I experience on a Sunday morning from 10 o'clock to 11.15 is meant to be a picture of what I ought to be doing and living into Monday through Saturday. This means that when we leave here, we leave as those who have come and partaken of God's bread God's wine, God's very self given for us in God's sacrifice. But we don't just take it for ourselves. We take it, become new, and then share it with the world around us. We leave having been remade by this work of Jesus, this grace found in our gathering together and our confessing and our singing and our listening and our feasting, and we're now sent out as new creatures, new people, humanized again able, maybe just a little bit more, to actually really love. And this is 
our vocation? To love. If God's move towards the world was a move of embrace and love, then when we leave here, our move towards the world ought to be a move of embrace and love. This is what it means to be image bearers. We look, we act, we move like Jesus. We are lovers, not fighters. Amen. It means we become people of hospitality, openly sharing our tables, our lives with those around us. We become extensions of this meal that we experience here together. Having eaten freely and drank deeply of God's grace, we're transfigured into people of grace living sacraments sent out into the world to be tangible expressions of God's grace in the world so that when an unbelieving world, a world that has not encountered the love of God encounters you, they might experience something they've never experienced before. Or maybe we could say it this way. As image bearers, as Christ's body, we ought to be the aroma of Christ, the incense of God's love in the world, So I want to embody this in some really, really practical ways. I've got a list. (laughs) Because I I don't want to just leave this in theory. Um, And this is not an exhaustive list. I also want to caveat this with a big asterisk that says, please, you have to hear the first part. It's God's deep love for you. God's move towards you and embrace before you can hear the second part. but here we go. It means that we are a people who look out for others rather than looking out for ourselves. Even, maybe especially, when it costs us. So rather than being critical, I'm never critical, promise. Not a, just not a critical person. I'm just filled with optimism and joy all the time. Ask anyone who knows me. I'm also not a liar, okay? Okay, all right. <laughs> But rather than being critical, we're charitable. Y'all, this one stings. I'm such a negative person. Right? I'm not talking about like blind optimism, just going through the, everything's bubblegum, it's fine. Like the person across from you is a fellow image bearer who God deeply loves and longs to embrace. Can you begin to see them that way? And then part two of this, as we are charitable and not critical, let's be people who are quick to self-examination rather than being quick to blame. I'd love my wife a lot more if she would dot, dot, dot. Yeah, but have you met my neighbor? Those people make it really hard to love. And yet, we are a people who look out for others and not ourselves, even when those others are different from us, even when those others are our enemies, even when those others might hate us. Um, I said these would be practical. I didn't say they'd be easy. (laughs) Second one, we are a people who are not about winning and are not afraid to lose. 
we find that the way of God seems to be unconcerned with whether God wins or loses in the world. And in fact, God seems to suggest that in this world, the way that this world functions, the way of God seems to more be associated with losing than winning and weakness rather than strength. What this actually looks like is we are compassionate rather than being wrathful. Now, I know none of you would ever be wrathful in here. But can I point directly to something that our community, me, myself included, are complicit in? I think it's really easy for us as we are fighting for justice in the world to get really angry and to begin to other people in a way who are on a different side of an issue than we are in ways that we would accuse those fundamentalists over there of doing. This is what I mean when I say we are a people of compassion rather than people of wrath, even in the face of injustice. We are a people of surrender rather than domination. We are people of kindness and not people of revenge. We are people who are willing to be wrong instead of always insisting that we are right. This is what it looks like for us to have the aroma of Christ in the world. It's weird. It's hard. Some might say it's a narrow road. Number three. I have five of these, by the way, so... Thank you all for bearing with me this morning. It was a a long week, capitalized by a couple of sleepless nights. Y'all are incredibly gracious. Good job. We are self-restrained in a world that sees self-restraint as uh, weakness. Uh, Here's what I mean. We're patient. We don't react on our impulses. Right, some of this goes back to our wrathiness. As I'm like percolating on this sermon this week, someone cut me off in traffic, and um, I, as I'm thinking about this sermon, I'm like, this guy, rah, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be three seconds later to where I was trying to go than I was before. How dare he? And it's a small thing, but it's a telling thing. Patient. Not letting our impulses reign and rule and get the best of us and decide how we're going to behave and show up in any given moment. We're also humble. At least I am. (laughs) Rather than being self-righteous. The church needs more of that in the world at large, I feel. I think there's something to be said about your friends, your neighbors, your family, your coworkers who experience Christ through you, who what they know about Jesus is what they know about you. And my prayer for all of us is that it would be counter, a counter-narrative to what they see on the news, what they see on people's so-called Christian banners at rallies and insurrections. We'd rather listen than speak. I was meeting with a a pastor friend of mine this week, and he regularly asked me like a series of just like, these are my five leadership questions that I ask all my pastor friends. And one of them is, how have you practiced kenotic listening today? Which is just simply this. 
You sit and you literally empty yourself of whatever it is that you need to say or want to say or are excited to talk about, and you just fully, presently hear them. Like, well, let me count. Let's see. Yeah, there'd be none. Zero. I've done that zero times today. Thanks. Appreciate this. This has been an encouraging conversation. But think about this in terms of how God sees us. Think about this in terms of our prayer. Maybe, or I don't know. Maybe why this is why prayer is filled with such silence. Maybe God is really slow to speak and really eager to hear his children. I don't know. That spoke to me a little bit this morning. Um, I'm someone who likes to talk, so... And it means, right, so being self-restrained means that we have a sense of self that's rooted in the love of God rather than feeling the need to put on some sort of mask, whether it's a religious mask or a moral mask or a political mask or whatever. I can be my awkward, weird, weak, limited self because God really actually truly loves that me. Number four, so we had we look out for others, not ourselves. We're losers, not winners. This is my TED talk. <laughs> We're self-restrained. Number four, we prior- prioritize communion and not capitalism, which means we are people of love, not people of stuff. Right? And this is going to express itself in a number of different ways, but I am um, profoundly challenged by the way that we set up our lives for convenience of work, career, money, rather than communion, community. Right, and communion is love of God, it's also love of people. So how am I carving out time to be with God? How am I carving out time to be with people? How am I prioritizing that in my world? I believe that Christians are invited to be people of communion and not capitalism. Last one, number five, we've reached the finish line almost. We reach towards the marginalized, the outsider, the one not yet experiencing or aware of God's boundless love for them. This means we are people of inclusion. Yes, even those people. (laughs) I mentioned earlier that uh, this idea of Christians being, having this idea that all humans are worthy of love bore the idea of hospitals. It's not actually accurate. We have evidence of hospitals outside of the fourth century before we have like the first like Byzantine hospital. The problem was is that those hospitals were always for who? The rich. The ones in the right caste system, the ones in the right religion. You had to worship at this temple in order to receive the health that this goddess provided. The thing that made Christian hospitals so unique is their radical move towards inclusion that these were spaces for anybody and everybody who needed healing. Christian, Muslim, rich, poor, did not matter. You were welcomed in and you were given healing. My prayer for us, uh, I want these things to be constructive challenges. I don't want them to be burdens that you're bearing out of here. 
I want them to be like tangible ways that you can begin to think through how, what might it look like for me as a person to enter into the love of God. And here's what I want to leave you with. I think the only way to do any of these five things that I've listed here is to be deeply rooted in the security of God's love. I don't think we can do it without that. To really actually robustly be convinced, God loved me then, God loves me now, God will love me tomorrow, and he is working towards my good through Jesus by his spirit. And so I can let go. And I can let my enemy be my enemy and do all the things that my enemy is going to do. And I can still love them. I can let someone cut me off in traffic and just be like, oh, well, I guess we're three seconds late today. I cannot be so obsessed about my money or my promotion or about my education or about whatever it is that I feel like I need to do to get whatever. You can let go. But only when we're deeply convinced of this love, this grace, this act of creation that's happening among us through Jesus, by his spirit. By grace, you have been saved. You are seated with Christ. You are a co-creator of God's new world of peace and love. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.